Welcome to the Clinical Research Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Wolke. In this podcast, we bridge conversations between industry, thought leaders, and patients. Utilizing a unique perspective, integrating years of coaching with Tony Robbins, coupled with scientific and industry experience. We have vulnerable and real conversations with the goal of impacting the industry in meaningful ways. In this episode, I sat down with Virginia Nido. Virginia is the global head of industry collaborations for Roche and Genentech. She's the co-founder and past board chair of the Clinical Research Data Sharing Alliance. Virginia serves on leadership teams for the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, the Society for Clinical Research Sites, the Association for Clinical Research Sites, and the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development. She's also a former member of the Transcelerate Integrated Leadership Team. Virginia holds an undergraduate degree from Bernard College and a master's degree in education from the University of Pennsylvania, as well as professional certificates in bioethics from Columbia University and precision medicine from the Harvard Business School. Virginia is passionate about the power of industry collaborations to improve the efficiency and quality of clinical research. Enjoy this episode. Virginia, welcome. Tell us a little bit about your background. What got you to this place in your career? Hi, Leanne. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm with uh, Genentech and Roche and been here 20 years already, just celebrated my 20-year anniversary. And currently, I head up a rather unique group at Roche called Industry Collaborations. So my team specializes in helping people get the most out of their experiences working together with peers from companies that we used to consider competitors, but now we're coming to the same table to try and solve big problems in drug development. What do you think has shifted that that landscape from kind of the separate, the feeling that, you know, we're all kind of competing for the same end goal to collaboration? So I think this has been a real transformation that's taken some time. I think the roots of it uh, started back in 1997, actually, with the formation of CDISC, the Clinical Data Interchange Standards Consortium. And that was a group of data scientists who kind of got tired of uh, talking about their problems year after year at conferences and decided to come together and start creating solutions around the data collection and curation uh, for registrational studies. So they started the pathway and, and set the tone for others in our industry to come together as peers. And over the last 20 years or so, uh, this idea of working collaboratively has really taken off. So you're finding groups like um, Harvard multi-regional clinical trials, like the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, Innovative Medicines Initiative, and now the Innovative Health Initiative in Europe, Transcelerate, and many, many other smaller um, collaborations that are focused on specific challenges in drug development and clinical trials. What do you think are the top three challenges and trials currently? Oh my gosh, there are <laughs> so many. Um, 
So top three, I would say that, you know, diversity is, it, of our trials is on everyone's mind right now. You're hearing a lot about that, especially since the FDA released their guidance on having diversity plans. So fortunately, um, many of the industry collaborations have already come up with great tools and solutions to help sponsors, CROs, and sites diversify their clinical trials. Uh, so for me, that would be number one, because we really need to be serving all patients mm -hmm. in drug development. And let's see, I, I think another really big challenge uh, for sites and then by extension CROs and sponsors right now is turnover and retention of site staff. Like many other um, industries, they're really feeling that pinch. It's hard to recruit people. It's hard to retain people. Sponsors and CROs are poaching site staff. <laughs> so just keeping great people on board at sites is a major challenge right now. Um, and then, you know, I would say perhaps number three is um, there's a lot of changes happening in the digital space not only with you know, wearables and uh, different apps coming into trials, different uh, types of digital applications, like what do we do with all of that? Uh, so how do we sort it? How do we know as sponsors, what's the best thing to use? We don't want to chase a shiny new object, but really think about how do we utilize these tools uh, that that's the best way to collect data that will become evidence of whether or not a drug is safe and effective. So I agree. Three huge problems or challenges. And, you know, the beauty of this industry, as I say, is if you like puzzles and you like challenges, you're in the right place because there's always a challenge. Um, if we look at diversity, if we look at the, you know, we've got the diversity at site staff issue, and then we also have diversity of patients. If we look at the metrics around patient participation, we see about 70% of the patients are white. So we've got a big disparity there. So that's one challenge. And then we also have the disparity of site staff, the percentage of people who are of diverse, different backgrounds, gender, um, race, et cetera. It's hard enough to get staff as it is. So how do we now shift and try to diversify staff when we can't even get the staff at the sites in the first place? It's a great question, Leanne. I think that um, there are a lot of really good efforts underway to try and address this problem, both from a short-term perspective and a longer-term perspective. So I work um, very heavily with both the Association for Clinical Research Professionals mm -hmm. and the Society for Clinical Research Sites, which both have some excellent efforts underway in terms of diversification of site staff. And there are also individual companies, uh, Genentech included, uh, many others who are supporting education in mm -hmm. their local communities through um, community colleges, um, creating programs to train drug developers, uh, both for you know, work at sites and at sponsors. Genentech even has a program. We, we start as early as kindergarten, uh, getting, <laughs> yep, wow. okay. getting, getting our little students ready <laughs> Get and just learning about careers in drug development. I think that most of us just fell into this. Like I certainly didn't grow up saying like, hey, I want to work on clinical trials. I didn't know what that was. 
uh, just something that I learned about much, much later, actually after college in my career. So there are many, many efforts underway to try and tackle this problem, but it's not going to be quick, right? right. I, I think that the, it's, it's, there are um, great solutions coming, but it's going to take some time. So I, I love uh, how you said that you fell into drug development. I too, I didn't even know what a clinic, I had done some research in grad school, but didn't know really what clinical research was. And uh, I knew that it paid better than working in a lab and I wasn't going to be around rats all day, which I thought was a great idea. Um, how did you fall into this field? Oh yeah, it, it's it's a wonderful story actually. So um, after college, I was living in Philadelphia and I found a, a program at the University of Pennsylvania that I really wanted to do. I, I, so this was um, the early nineties and I was quite concerned about the AIDS pandemic and I wanted to try and work in that field in some way. And so I found a program at the University of Pennsylvania that really met those goals, but how was I gonna pay for that? So I learned that if, if someone worked at the University of Pennsylvania, you get free tuition for graduate school for free. So I actually pursued a job there and I thought, okay, well, whatever, I'll be shelving books in the library, it doesn't matter. But I got a role as an administrative assistant to the chairman of the ophthalmology department. Hmm. And he also happened to be the principal investigator of two seminal ophthalmology clinical trials funded by the National Eye Institute under National Institutes of Health. So there I was um, kind of as this executive assistant to the head of two clinical trials. And I'm like, what's a clinical trial? <laughs> so I started, you know, reading and, and learning about that. And part of my duties were to manage um, the, the investigator meetings and mm. like coordinator meetings. So I was like, you know, 23 and taking Amtrak to Johns Hopkins and feeling all cool and proud of myself. But I just fell in love with the, with the work. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. It, totally by happenstance that I learned about it. And then I worked in academia for a number of years, including at um, University of California, San Francisco, and then, you know, kind of worked my way through quintiles mm -hmm. um, and then came to Genentech. I think all roads go through quintiles at some point. I started right? <laughs> in San Diego at somewhere that later got, became part of quintiles back when it was tiny and, and then saw it explode, you know, in the mid to late nineties. And and uh, really transform the industry. What do you think is going to happen with, as CROs have got so big, how is that going to impact the industry? I can take a stab at that. Um, you know, I think CROs are a key partner, right, for um, every, every sponsor. Mm -hmm. And it's such an important relationship um, you know, and having worked on both sides of that, I am, am very much in awe of all the expertise that CROs have and, uh, you know, can often be a lot more innovative uh, than than um, some sponsor organizations. You know, in fact, I, I think that at sponsors, sometimes we, we branch out too far mm -hmm. in terms of innovation and you know, one of the things like, I'm sorry, I'm going to criticize my own people here a little bit, but during the pandemic, Genentech created their own contact tracing app. And I'm like, really? Um, I think, <laughs> I think other people can probably do that better and faster than we can. Like we're drug developers. Yeah. Like, we are drug developers. Like I often feel like let's stay in our lane. 
Mm-hmm. And let's hire great vendors and business partners to kind of create the things around us that we need. So I do, you know, value those relationships very, very much. And I, I do want to encourage sponsors. There, there are times to create your own thing, right? There's times to borrow and there's times to hire good people to help you. And, and you need to sort out where you are at any given point in that development innovation journey. Yeah, I I completely agree. I've seen, you know, I think people here in the patient recruitment realm, for example, um, they'll think like, "Ah, I need to have a landing page. Someone said a landing page is a good thing and that'll drive recruitment. So they take the protocol title and they slap it on a landing page. And then they've got so much information because out of the goodness of their heart, they want to make sure everybody has all the information they could ever possibly need. However, from a marketing perspective and a consumer perspective, they don't know what a double blind, randomized, placebo control, blah, blah, blah. They're like, oh, that's scary. Let me bounce off of that page and go to something else. Um, so I, I, I think it's what you talk about is partnering and, and knowing what your strengths are, leveraging those, and then surrounding yourselves by others who can support in those other areas. What do you think is essential for a key partnership to be able to have that outsourced innovation? How do you hire partners? Like if it's not something that your company is hundred percent subject matter experts in, for example, digital marketing or building apps, how do you know that the person you're talking to really knows what they're doing? Um, yeah, and I'm going to, I can't, I can't answer. I, definitely not my area of expertise. So we should probably. Sure take out that part. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. And maybe I worded it the wrong way. So I guess, um, what makes a great partnership for innovation? Right. So, you know, within my wheelhouse, uh, for industry collaborations, you know, we're, we're talking about partnerships and collaborations all the time. So, what we do in industry collaborations is look for uh, like-minded sponsors, first of all, who are working to solve the same challenges in drug development. And this can be you know, quite, uh, quite a breadth of problems. So we work together on things as fundamental as a protocol template. Mm. Uh, we work on, you know, common AE fields, looking for how do, what's the best way to get uh, patient feedback on a drug development, clinical development plan, or a protocol. How do we thank patients for their participation? What are best practices around that? What are best practices coming out of the pandemic? So what what we're really looking for is subject matter expertise, which is there in abundance, you know, from our peer companies. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, are there others in that ecosystem that can also help? And, And there, you know, we really do look for business partners, vendors, CROs to come to that table with that expertise and augment that thinking. From a practical perspective, in, in 2021, uh, I co-founded a, an industry collaboration around post-trial data sharing because I kept hearing constantly all the time about real-world data, real-world evidence. And I'm like, well, what about the trials that we already completed? Shouldn't we also be sharing that data? Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly if we are 
finished with a trial. We're not interrogating that data anymore. If we're finished with a certain disease area or you know line extension, we're not pursuing that. That is very valuable data that patients donated. Like it's their time, their body parts <laughs> in some yeah. cases that you know they they have donated that data. And I believe we have an ethical responsibility to interrogate it over and over and over again to learn the most we can. So I created the clinical uh, clinic CRDSA, the Clinical Research Data Sharing Alliance, Clinical Research Data Sharing Alliance. And we now have, uh, I think we're up to 26 members, including uh, sponsor companies, as well as um, academic organizations, data sharing platforms themselves, uh, and many um, vendors and business partners who are all bringing their knowledge to try and figure out what are technical standards and best practices around giving and getting post-trial data. Right. So as we think about that, if we're trying to look at, and I love this idea of sharing data and being able to really leverage that, you know, there's this altruism that most of us in this industry have a sense of really wanting to help others. We are here because we really care about what happens to the patients and we want to be able to leverage that so that they can get the life-saving treatments that they need. Um, and this initiative that you founded seems to fit right into that. As part of that, do there need to be even more standards about how we collect data so that it's standardized and can then be fed into a larger pool to review more data? Oh, absolutely. That's fundamental. And that, you know, is something that groups like CDIS continue to work on, you know, for more than 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and additionally, I think we really do need to move in a direction of embedded clinical trials into clinical practice so that your standard appointment that you have with a primary care physician or a specialist can be considered part of data gathering for a clinical trial. And it's not some other appointment that you need to have in this other building across town, right? It, right. We need to work very hard on that. And connecting up uh, electronic medical records, electronic health records, so that they, they are designed to be research ready, that that is not some massive problem to connect those pipes from an EMR to an electronic case report form. You know, there's vendors that are very good at that, yeah. but why, why do we have to have the interface anyway? Why can't we just have research ready EMRs? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, you know, and a lot of these problems that the industry has had have been around for 20 years. You know, we, we had the same kind of problems for 20 plus years. COVID caused us to think differently and it caused that exponential shift with instead of taking a decade to develop a vaccine, it was able to be done in a very short period of time. How can we take that same, you know, transformational thinking and apply it to some of these other issues? So I don't think we know yet um, what is working and is not working uh, sort of in this new post-ish pandemic world. Um, I was actually speaking with um, Ken Getz, who is the executive director of the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development, and they do some excellent empirical research. And I'm hoping that 
Tufts and others will be able to do that research about what has really changed. Like what really are the best practices that have come out of the pandemic? Like, are we doing any better with patient recruitment? Are we faster? Are we able to incorporate home health visits, um, local labs, elements of hybrid or decentralized trials? I just don't think we have enough time or data yet to really understand that as an industry. Fair enough. Yeah. I think, you know, anybody can mobilize for a short period of time. We've all had the studies that require all hands on deck. Everyone's traveling 90% of the time you know, back in the day or working 18 hours a day. But is that sustainable for individuals or an industry? I would tend to say no. You know? Yes, I agree. <laughs> Obviously, during the pandemic, there were many pivots. Mm-hmm. And we can't do that on a sustained basis. You're absolutely right. I, I think obviously we do need to change how we're working. But one of the points that I made in a recent presentation that I gave at uh, the Scope 2023 Summit is that I don't want to give a message of being all doom and gloom about the state of clinical trials. Because you'll hear that a lot. Like, oh, we're really bad at this as clinical trialists and we're making studies more complex and less patient-friendly. And I actually really disagree with that because my lived experience is hundreds of thousands of people working every single day really hard to make trials better for patients. That's what I do and all of my colleagues do on a day-to-day basis. Like we want to collect excellent data that is evidence that can turn into evidence to prove whether or not a drug is safe or effective. And we want to do that in a way that is respectful to patients, that we are offering clinical trials to a much greater group of people, that we want to be excellent partners with our sites and with our CROs. So the doom and gloom story doesn't resonate with me at all. I think trials really are getting better. And and I'm hoping that in with time, we will be able to get that proof, that research to show that, that we are doing a better job and that it's not just anecdotal. I, I agree with you. I think that, I don't know if I've seen a harder group of workers than in this industry, because people really are willing to work with a sense of curiosity and ask those questions that can change protocols, that can change patients' lives, can change processes, can change thinking. And, you know, the doom and gloom, I almost wonder if it's out of a desire to constantly get better in that almost researcher mind. Well, what if we tweak this? What if we tweak this? But it can feel like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling because it's, if we're always only looking at what we've got to improve and not really celebrating. So what would you say are some of the the celebrations of the industry? What are we doing well? Yeah, it, it's a great topic. So I think that um, let, let's take a look at you know diversity in clinical trials. I, I think that that is obviously um, a hot topic for several years now. And I know that Genentech and Roche and many, many other companies are taking this much more seriously and, and really not just because of the recent FDA um, um, guidance. We've been taking it very seriously for years. Uh, and things like chief diversity officers and, you know, heads of 
diversity of patient recruitment, you're seeing this many, many times over and over again in the, in the different companies, better partnerships with sites. So, so that's one that I think we are doing a lot better. And then more from, you know, a scientific perspective, we're doing better with companion uh, diagnostics and biomarkers. So we are looking for every drug that we can to pair that with a biomarker that will say, yep, we think that this drug is going to have a pretty good shot of working in this type of patient, right? If you're over here, this drug's probably not going to work for you. So we're not going to, you know, subject you to a clinical trial, right? Mm -hmm. We, we want to pair them wherever we can. And some research shows that particularly in phase two, we are getting over that hump a lot better that drugs with companion diagnostics are much more successful uh, getting past phase two. And even overall from phase one through approval, drugs with a companion diagnostic have a twofold probability of success for approval across all disease areas. Uh, so let's let's talk a bit about your your presentation you recently gave about would you allow your mother to participate in clinical research? How did you come up with that idea? <laughs> well, it's funny. It wasn't my title. Okay. Um, I, I was, uh, there was someone who previously was supposed to give that talk who I, I, I don't know why they were, it, they had to back out. And so I, I inherited the title, although the, the, in it, conference organizer said, you can change it to whatever you want. And I was like, no, I love that. <laughs> I, that's a fantastic title. And I'll build my talk around that. But it was really uh, personally meaningful to me, Le Leanne, because as I relate, related in the talk, uh, 20 years ago, uh, my mother passed away of ovarian cancer. And as someone who has spent my entire career on clinical trials, I tried very hard to get her into a clinical trial. And there were none 20 years ago. You know, th there was not even a shot for her to get on any clinical trial. And now there would be 58 options wow. for a phase three trial in ovarian cancer. So the world has changed in terms of what is available to patients. I made the point strongly in my talk that if you're not comfortable enrolling your mother on one of your clinical trials, then we're doing something wrong. We should be. We should feel comfortable. We should feel comfortable with our moms, any relative, any friend recommending them to a well-designed clinical trial with clinical equipoise that is asking a true and meaningful research question that has well-designed endpoints that are meaningful to that patient and aren't overly burdensome. Like, could any of these visits be done from home? How many blood draws are we talking about? Are you going to have to stay overnight somewhere at the clinic? We should be thinking about all of those things as we're sitting there writing that protocol. Would I want to go through this? Would I put my mom on this trial? That is exactly how we should be thinking about it. I agree hundred percent. And, uh, you know, thinking about what is really, um, what is realistic to ask someone to do. We had a family friend that was, had gone through bone marrow transplants and he had had a recurrence of, of his cancer. And he was looking at clinical trials and he didn't understand the inclusion exclusion criteria. So they were putting all of their bets on this clinical trial. And I said, Hey, can I take a look at the inclusion exclusion for you and, and, and give you some guidance? And I took a look and I 
realized that he wasn't going to qualify. So I was able to give them that news, which was not news anyone wants to hear. However, it gave them the gift of time because if something wasn't going to be an option, they were able to then pivot and look at something else that they could try. You know, so making sure that people can have access to a clinical trial, that they can understand what it is or, or find guidance from someone that can help them discern, is this going to be a good fit for my lifestyle even? If it's somebody who has to be at work to support their family and we're expecting them to come in out of the goodness of their heart for multiple clinic visits, which mean they're going to lose time at their hourly job, that's not realistic to ask someone, in my opinion. Yes, I agree. And so how do you have any feelings about, you know, some, um, this recent issue came up about patient payments and someone said, well, that's coercing the patient. And I take a different stance because I think that you need to accommodate somebody for their time. Their time has value. And so if we don't in some way compensate them for their time, the inconvenience, travel, et cetera, we're doing them a disservice and the industry a disservice. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And while I am not an expert in um, patient recruitment or patient reimbursement, um, it, it, it is not unethical in any way um, or coercive to, at, at a minimum, reimburse patients for costs that they incur mm -hmm. as a part of one of our clinical trials. Um, and, and I don't think there is any bioethicist who would disagree with that. Uh, exactly to your point, you know, patients are doing this, um, you know, not entirely altruistically, right? They they want to get something out of it too, you know, better medical mm -hmm. care, a shot at being on the active arm. Um, but, you know, there there is a lot of giving back, right? Like patients want to do this for future generations in the hopes that anyone else suffering from their disease will have a shot at a good treatment. So we should absolutely be reimbursing patients for at a minimum the costs that they are incurring. But I agree, time, time missed from work as well. Yeah. Now, if we think about this, and I know you mentioned that you went into the industry because you wanted to work with AIDS patients or, or to help with AIDS. Were you ab ever able to do that? Yeah, I did. It's, it, it's a circuitous route. But um, when I was in college, I was in college in New York City, like right in the midst of the AIDS pandemic. And so I saw it, you know, a lot. And similarly, when I moved to San Francisco, it was something that I lived with as a young person every day. And I really wanted to help in some way. So I got into um, peer education in college. So education around um, safer sex behaviors and minimizing one's risk. Um, for HIV and other uh, sexually transmitted infections. And I continued that into graduate school. And I ended up um, as one of my first jobs uh, with the University of California, San Francisco Center for AIDS Prevention Studies. I was part of an NIH grant uh, that worked in middle schools oh, wow. uh, that young, right? Like, so we considered like young, very young people, but at high risk for risky behaviors such as drug and alcohol abuse and early sexual experimentation that could put them at risk, you know, for an HIV infection. So when I was in my mid twenties, I actually um, worked 
in the Oakland, California middle schools um, on a sex education HIV prevention program, which was fantastic. I mean, amazing experience. Um, so then I worked on a few other um, HIV and epi epidemiologic studies during that time. Uh, I didn't stay in that field very long. I kind of moved out of that and, you know, into other disease areas, but it was such a unique experience as a young person to be able to come home from work every day and say, like, I just hopefully touched a young person's life, you know, and, and changed their life for the better and taught them something that they really need to know. It, it, the job had a lot of meaning for me. It sounds like it. And, and what a great contribution. And also um, how fantastic that you were able to live out that desire that you had. So what, what fuels you now? Oh my goodness. So many things fuel me, but I think that, um, you know, helping people understand what we actually do in drug development fuels me. Uh, I have a, a not so secret TikTok addiction. <laughs> I'm working on it, but I not love it. Successfully. But, you know, the, the miss, there's a lot of good information on TikTok. Honestly, I learn something every day. You can really do deep, dive, deep dives there, but there is a lot of misinformation. And I ran across a thread yesterday with, we've all heard this, you know, the sort of, they are withholding cancer treatments from us because they will make more money from the treatments rather than a cure. Mm -hmm. I'm like, so who, who's this they that you are talking about? Like there's, I don't know what a million people worldwide working on cancer prevention from clinical trialists to lab professionals to, you know, physicians and oncologists and radiation oncologists and nursing professionals. Like, so who, who's the, they, like, we're all in on it or something. <laughs> and, and so I hate that. And I had a pretty, um, visceral experience with that during the pandemic, I decided to pursue a, a professional certificate from Columbia in bioethics. Mm -hmm. So I took online classes, like four classes, fantastic experience and learned so much. And I was in classes with many different types of people. A lot of, you know, younger people sort of starting off their careers, like were on their way to medical school or nursing school, or were, you know, EMTs and switching careers and just a lot of different types of people. They were not all working for sponsor organizations like me. And the amount of, um, honestly, like anger towards the pharmaceutical industry shocked me. Mm. I knew it was out there, but when I encountered it firsthand, shocking, it was not ad hominem. Like it wasn't against me. But I did feel like I had to spend a great deal of my class time educating my fellow students about what it is I actually do all day. <laughs> you know, I, I honestly think they thought like I sit in a dark room, like smoking a cigar, thinking about how to raise <laughs> drug prices for, for poor people. And much of my time was like, okay, so this is what I do during a day. And trust me, me and all of my colleagues are 100% concerned and focused on trying to help find good drugs for patients that are life extending or hopefully even life saving. Mm -hmm. That's all we do. Okay. But it was very frustrating, but I think um, ultimately like a good experience to realize that that is out there. 
Uh, so it that fuels me. I want to really, really educate people about what clinical trialists do and about the value of industry collaborations to transform this space. That's fantastic. Is it's uh, as you're talking about this, I'm I'm chuckling because everyone, maybe not everyone, people don't realize the value of clinical research until someone they love needs a drug. So for me, yeah, for me, it was my husband. He had cancer and had to have high dose chemo and stem cell transplants. And I can tell you that every single person involved with his care was 100% committed to him getting well. It wasn't that they were trying to fleece us of, you know, a few extra thousand dollars. And I can sit here today and be extremely thankful that 17 years later, he's healthy because of the work that people have done in clinical trials for years and the patients that have gone before and refined these treatments for patients to have them so that nowadays, if someone has to have a stem cell transplant, they know the path and it's, it's doable. It's not um, a death sentence as it used to be. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that story about your husband. And I think even as something simple as like an antibiotic, right. Which we take for granted. Like I wanted people like, where do you think that came from? (laughs) Right. It didn't magically appear. There were people like me decades ago who developed those. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's every single time if they take Claritin or Zyrtec or so that they don't have seasonal allergies, that somebody created that. So that's a great point. Um, What keeps you, so that kind of fuels you what is next on your agenda? What is it that's going to be your next passion? Uh, I, you know, I, I really love the work that I do in industry collaborations and to date, I have never met anyone with my exact job. Um, most companies do not consolidate the oversight of their pre-competitive or non-competitive industry collaborations under one umbrella. So you'll kind of have your Transcelerate people over here and your Innovative Medicines people over here and your Clinical Trials Transformation people over here. I think Roche has done the right thing by putting that all under one umbrella so that we can make good decisions about where we're going to participate and what solutions, importantly, are we going to adopt and are we going to bring in-house and change our internal processes based on those wisdom of crowd developed industry collaborations. So I'd love to encourage other companies to do this. Trust me, you're going to save money in the long run. Um, But honestly, my passion is this, Leanne. I I think I I want to continue in this as long as I can, because I do still feel like it's an underutilized approach Mm -hmm. to transforming both internally and externally how we best serve patients through clinical trials. Completely agree. And I love it. I, I, I appreciate you so much, Virginia. I appreciate your excitement for the industry, your willingness to chat about it, your willingness to look amongst, you know, the whole industry and innovate and encourage collaboration. I want to be respectful of your time, but I'd love to know what is it if there were two things that could be done, two messages that you wanted to give to to those that are out there wondering about clinical research or you know, working in the industry and maybe getting burnout, what would you say to them? Well, first, I want to say that this is extremely valuable work. So always understand that 
you know, maybe you don't feel it on a day to day basis, but your work is valued, respected and appreciated. And I also want to encourage any you know younger people or mid-career people who might be listening to this who want to pursue a career in clinical research, like go for it. It is fantastic. It's so rewarding. Uh, it, it's just you learn something new every day for sure. Uh, the people that you can work with are truly like brilliant. I am so inspired and motivated by the smarty pants that I get to work with every day, not only internally, but externally on all of these wonderful uh, consortia that I am involved with. It's so inspiring and motivating. It doesn't feel like work at all. You wake up every day with a passion and, and it just, yeah, it's hard and it's challenging, but it doesn't feel like work. And that's a perfect scenario for a career. It's an old saying, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Exactly that. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And you taking the time. And uh, like I said, I just, I'm, I'm grateful for you taking time and for your passion for the industry. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Leanne. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Clinical Research Coach. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd subscribe and leave a rating and a review. I truly hope that you got something out of this episode that can help us all work towards our goal of making a meaningful difference in the lives of others.